Hello, welcome to Tea Hanks for the Memories. I am your host Darren. Today we're going to be covering the fifth proper film in uh, in Tom Hanks' career, uh, which is called Volunteers. Uh, directed by Nicholas Meyer, who I think directed uh, Wrath of Khan, I, the, what, two years before this, three years before this. So, you know, he was he was obviously uh, doing quite well. And it was uh, written by David Isaacs and Ken Levine and Keith F. Critchlow. Uh, there's a lot more on David Isaacs and K- Ken Levine than there is uh, Keith F. Critchlow. It was released on August 16th, 1985. Uh, it had a budget of 10 million, which is, you know, t- they build a bridge in this film, so... I could see where the money went. Um, and it made almost twice that, about 19 million. So uh, not, a, not a failure, but not really what you would call uh, a huge success. Um, there is a, there's a whole there's a whole thing about the production with, um, you know, the, the, the fact that they actually, you know, because they're obviously, you know, talking about the Peace Corps and everything. Um, and there was some kind of, uh, there were some issues with the Peace Corps. Um, with regards to the tone of the film and, you know, how it was showing the Peace Corps, kind of the, the light it was showing. So, but, you know, I think, you know, it did okay in terms of uh, the box office. Released by Tristar, which at this particular point in time were owned by the Coca-Cola company um, for, for the 80s. Such a kind of odd thing, but that will come into play later on. Um, and uh, joining me to talk about the film today is... Andy Nelson. Why, hello there. I'm, I'm just going to say, of course, obviously, this is the second collaboration between Tom Hanks and John Candy coming after Splash, and I think their final collaboration. Uh, I don't think they ever worked together again. Obviously, uh, John Candy stuck with the kind of comedic roles for the rest of his career, uh, whereas Tom Hanks very quickly, uh, over the kind of course of the next kind of four or five years, started to edge more towards doing uh, the more dramatic roles. Um, this is definitely not that. This is not dramatic at all. This is kind of peak comedy Tom Hanks. Um, and in this one, he puts on a voice. So, you know, uh, we get that as well. <laughs> you know, obviously, Andy, you signed up for this. Uh, I think you already have a history with the film, uh, if you'd like to explain to people kind of uh, what that is. This, to be honest with you, I watched this film for the first time today, a few hours ago. And literally, until I started this project, I don't think I'd even heard of this film. Um, so, so, wow. so I have literally no history with it, only finding out about the title mere weeks ago. So, um, you obviously Amazing. have a, a lot more kind of, uh, a lot more of a history with the, with the film. If you want to tell the listeners. I do. Yeah. So, uh, well, and, and with Tom Hanks, I mean, I've, it, it's interesting because, uh, not so much this film, but you know, the next film we'll be talking about. Uh, yeah. So Tom Hanks, I, I started really kind of, uh, latching onto him and his career around like the mid 80s and really i mean it, you know when i'm back on the show uh with nothing in common that's really kind of like the peak window of time i started watching tom hanks films but it was it was um this like i watched all of these films all the time when i was a kid like i had this on videotape and i watched this uh you know until the tape burned up and i i have it on blue right now and it's just one of those films that i love watching it's just really funny it's not a perfect film. I'm not going to say that, but it hit at, you know, and you, you know, everyone has these, those movies that you hit, you connect with at a certain point in your life. And it's just like, it's, it's one of your films. And so this was definitely that. And 
I know it has some, you know, some not so great reviews and stuff. And so I, you know, on, on the podcast that I do, the Next Real Film Podcast, um, we periodically will do uh, some guilty pleasure series. And, uh, and I picked this as one of my guilty pleasures. And so we talked about this and had a great conversation about this. And in the course of that conversation, apparently managed to upset Ken Levine, one of the writers who wrote about it in his blog. And so subsequently, we ended up having him on our show as a follow-up episode just to kind of talk through all of the uh, the complaints and the issues and address all the points. So uh, so it was a lot of fun. I've talked about this film a number of times on podcasts and uh, and still endlessly love it. Yeah, and I think the thing is, you know, obviously when you say Ken Levine, um, you know, he he wrote for MASH. <laughs> like, um, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he he wrote the kind of the, the two-part episode where they got, where Radar left. Like, you know, he's he's been nominated for, you know, Emmys and... Uh, and yeah. wrote for Cheers for, like, the duration. Yeah, which will play into the, yeah. the next film that we talk about <laughs> um, together. Uh, not the next film I talk about, because obviously there's a different film that comes out in between them. Um, right, right. But yeah, so yeah, it's it's kind of, you know he, that's kind of interesting that he um, that he cared basically um, about people talking on a podcast about it. So I hope I won't uh, you know raise his ire um, by, <laughs> by what I, well, I tell you. Apparently he's looking. So so be be forewarned. Yeah, no, I must say, like you know, Ken Levine, Ken Levine is one of those names that obviously I you know you start when you when you watch a lot of sitcoms as you know I did. When when I was younger, you start to see like, you know, certain names come up again over and over and you kind of start to remember them, particularly, you know, um, you know, some of those really big ones like Cheers, Frasier, you know, like you, you recognize the names. Um, so obviously when I, when I yeah. saw his name on this film, I saw, I already recognized it. Uh, also he wrote Mannequin 2 on the move, uh, which is a yes. sequel to one of my favorite films of all time. I love, uh, I love Mannequin. I did actually tweet something about Mannequin, uh, a few weeks, a few weeks ago, and um, it was it was liked by Kim Cattrall. So that was um, I don't know if she's just out oh, there. Very, I didn't I didn't tag her anything. I literally just mentioned <laughs> about how she was my favorite Egyptian, and um, you know she just liked the she liked That's the tweet. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but Levine offered to come back on our show if we ever decided to cover Mannequin too. Oh, so there you... <laughs> we still have that in our back pocket. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, and the thing is, I would say that this film, in terms of obviously watching it for the first time now, I can you know I would say Mannequin. Mannequin is 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 like this film is um you know for you like I watched Mannequin I mean just like so many times um you know I I like I literally um this is this is this is gonna make me sound extremely old but I'm not that old um but I was able to rewind my tape where I'd recorded Mannequin to the exact point when the film started just by sight um so I I, I would <laughs> wow. I would be able to just look, take the tape out look at it and I'd be like nah it's a bit too it's got to fast forward it just a little bit to get to the exact start point. Um, but yeah, no, I love Mannequin, uh, Secret of My Success. Um, you know, there's a, oh, yeah. you know, there's a, I mean, even Splash, which obviously I've already talked about, you know, like I had Splash, t you know, we, I think we actually rented Splash like a number of times. Um, you know, and the same is true of Big as well. I think we rent, like we watched Big once and then obviously we, we just kept going back and uh, renting it from the, from the, from the uh, video shop over and over again because we just love that film so much. So, you know, there, I understand that obviously, you know, there are certain films that get you at a certain age and, you know, regardless of the quality, I would certainly say it's true of Mannequin. Um, you know, you, you get an affection for them. And, um, you know, I have none of that with this. So this is just me judging it based on uh, watching it this <laughs> right. afternoon. Um, but I can... I, the, for the first time. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the thing is as well is this has a really strong premise, which is just a rich kid 
joins the Peace Corps because he's been threatened uh, by his, <laughs> the people who, like, by his bookmakers. And, yeah, his bookies, and right. then while in, you know, uh, a foreign country, which in this case is Thailand, um, you know, he builds a bridge and then blows it up. I mean, you know, that's a fairly simple um, premise. And I can kind of understand where some of the comedy could come from. Um, it's also worth mentioning as well to say that this is produced by Walter F. Parks, um, who uh, later on would be a producer of the Men in Black series. Um, but previous to this had written, uh, co-written War Games, uh, which, again, one of my favorite 80s films. Um, and also um, he wrote Sneakers as well. Those were kind of like uh, oh, the two big films nice. that he did and, you know, based on technology and stuff. Um, and then kind of in between, he was kind of a producer for a number of films. So obviously this is one of the films um, that he produced. Um, and like I said, Nicholas Meyer, he was doing, you know, OK. Uh, you know, I think, yeah. you know, coming off of uh, of, of Ratha Khan, um, you know, and, you know, kind of getting a lot of acclaim for that. Um, and then I think he did he return later to Star Trek for Undiscovered Country if I'm remembering correctly. It's like a he does yeah, yeah. it's like a, right, a bookend exactly. of the, the kind of classic, uh, the classic yep, films. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so and he worked on the script for uh, Voyage Home also. Yeah, so you know the three good ones from the eighties. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> much, yeah. was, the even, it's it's always the even numbered ones. Yes, right? yeah. <laughs> oh, well, uh, you know that kind of broke. Uh, I mean, he also it's, he also yeah, he also yeah. wrote uh, Summersby, which is. Uh, Probably the only Richard Gere film that I can kind of tolerate. Um, you know, I'd, not, not, not like not, not like hate Richard Gere or anything, but so many roles he's been in, I'm like, yeah, he's he's like Mayo, um, and I'm I'm just not. Just, but yeah, so Walter F. Parks not, is a you know kind of notable director uh, in his own right as well, and you know he's done a lot of stuff over the years, and uh, I think he also gets credited as a producer on a, a. There's so many films he gets credited as a producer on. Um, and and yeah, he's mostly a producer. Yes, I believe, yeah, right? like the the fact that yeah. he started out as like a screenwriter and then kind of immediately started started producing a lot of stuff uh, is kind of interesting. Like just in terms of of how his career kind of went. Um, but yeah, so you know, I I just thought it's worth kind of mentioning that. Um, and you know, obviously this is this is released by TriStar. Uh, like I said, we'll get back to that. There was a few films that Tom Hanks obviously did in the kind of mid eighties for TriStar. Uh, before they got sold to somebody else and then sold to someone else. And then I think they ended up at Sony uh, kind of down the line. Um, but enough of the backstory. Let's get into the film. Um, and, you know, it starts with uh, it starts with a, a song that I actually associate with American Werewolf in London, uh, which is Blue Moon, uh, which I think on the soundtrack has something like nine different versions of the song. Um, it's just constant like uh, Blue Moon, but this is uh, oh. this is one of the original versions of yeah, very much Blue Wolfie. Moon that we kind of open with um, to a nice montage of various '60s stuff. We get a little bit of JFK's, you know, uh, ask not what you can do for your country, um, and just the kind of I think we you know we get flashes of the words Peace Corps here and there, so we're kind of introduced to the basic idea of where the film is headed. And you know a strong setting. Yeah, it's really it's really right in that period of American history when JFK is really setting all of this stuff up, right? I mean, the Peace Corps he sets up in uh, I think sixty one. It was like right yeah. at the beginning of the sixties, and this film takes place in sixty two. So it's like this is the beginning of the Peace Corps. This is kind of that that period of time where uh, Kennedy is trying to kind of establish this uh, this type of uh, presence. Yeah. Although which, I gotta say, uh, Andy, I'm not I, sure how you can figure out it's the year 1962. It's not like somebody says 
those words over and over and over again in this film. Um, and if you want, if you want a simple drinking game, just drink every single time that Tom Hanks says his character's name, yes, Lawrence right. Bourne or, or the third. Every single time he says the third, yeah. take a shot, and I guarantee you, twenty minutes into this film, you'll be completely blackout drunk. Um, because that seems to be, I'm, I'm assuming that is done as a joke. Like it's done as a joke on the idea that somebody who is this kind of like, um, you know, old money type, uh, you know, Yaley would constantly say that he's class of 62 from Yale and also constantly mention that he's a, you know, he's a, he's a tray basically, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think that has to be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he says it too often for it to not be a joke. Um, quite frankly. Well, and I, and I think that's part of the joke that they're, they're all making with Lawrence of Arabia because there are some, certainly some David lean esque uh, kind of spoofs that they're doing here with the name Lawrence being this kind of savior character for this, this uh, this smaller country, right? Yeah. Because uh, very much, even at the end, when they're all chanting Lawrence, Lawrence, I'm like, I feel like I've heard this with <laughs> with a different movie about a different Lawrence. Yeah. Um. I I like as well how we quickly get. Well, um, it's also worth mentioning as well. I should say uh, in the credits it says and John Candy, so he's getting the and uh, as yeah. Tom Tull from Tacoma, and I love that they. I do like that as a detail that they give his full name in the credits, as if somebody in the audience is 1985 is sitting there going, "Wait, there, am I meant to know who that character is? Like, is that someone famous, Tom Tull from Tacoma?" Well, and that's another. That's a, an addition to your drinking game. Yes, right? that's when you do the shots. Is like every time Tom Tuttle from Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> like, you know, there's. <laughs> yeah, every time the the two main characters. Uh, I don't actually is he the, is he a main character or is he just a he's just he feels like his his entire thing is kind of a subplot isn't it I mean I feel like Beth and Lawrence are the kind of the two main characters really but um, yeah I think he's definitely supporting but really here kind of because of that that follow up partnership that he uh, that camaraderie that he had so well in Splash with Tom Hanks yeah it feels like they are trying it feels like they cast him just because he was in Splash and they wanted to try and capture that again. Um, and yeah. that's I mean it works a, a little bit I think on the plane when he's kind of talking to him and he kind of <laughs> Tom Hanks is just like can you bring me some like alcohol and just like he, you know he gets the the kind of the <laughs> you know the, the the air hostess to kind of come over because he's he's kind of getting so uh, bored it felt a little bit like um, the gag in airplane where everybody kept killing themselves when they were sitting next to uh, to Robert Hayes every time he recounted his the story of his love um, well, and it and it's a brilliant. I, I I have to feel that that John Hughes pulled from that for uh, for several moments with John Candy and Steve Martin yeah. in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles because it feels very much like that same sort of relationship. You know, that antagonistic <laughs> character who just talks too much and just drives you crazy. Plus, you know, the whole singing with uh, Puff the Magic Dragon we have here, which feels very much like John Candy getting everyone to start singing the Flintstones when they're on the bus. It all, it's it feels like there's a lot of sharing going on. Yeah, in, uh, I was going to say, it, it did kind of remind me of uh, Planes, Trains, yeah. Um, but we, 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 we start with Lawrence, uh, born the third, and he, he has a gambling debt of 28000 <laughs> dollars which is in 1962 that is a lot of that is a lot of money even today it's a lot of money but in 1962 that is a lot of money which i guess i guess goes to show you just how rich he is right yeah yeah i guess that yeah they, they they're making it clear um you know that he is he is old money first of all he's lawrence lawrence born the third uh, but also, yeah, yeah, the fact that he's been able to get away with kind of that much money. He puts a bad bet on uh, on on LA as well, doesn't he? He he thinks LA is going to win against the Celtics, and uh, 
Oh, he goes double or nothing. Yeah, and I isn't. I mean, wasn't the weren't the Celtics in the sixties? Weren't they like a dynasty? Didn't they win like I don't know eight eight championships or something? <laughs> so it feels like he's definitely picking the wrong horse. Um, yeah, and and it, I mean, it is based on an actual game. I mean, this is the real game with the real stats yeah. that we're looking at. So obviously, the writers, you know, they they chose to kind of pick that very specifically, probably because of that. Yeah, it's a nice. It's, I mean, it's a nice detail. Obviously, you know, we're in '85, so we know what happened in '62. But still, it's, yeah. it's a nice detail that they put in there. Um, you know, he goes to his father for money, uh, played by George Plimpton, who I'm sure everybody will recognize from the 300th episode of The Simpsons, where he was the host of the Spellympics. Um, and he tried to get Lisa to throw the Spellympics, uh, the Spellympiad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, and he, he tempted her with a, uh, which was something that ties in here. He, he, uh, he tried to get her to throw by, uh, giving her a scholarship to one of the, uh, seven sisters, which, uh, is brought up here by, uh, I think, uh, is it Bootsy? She goes to Smith, uh, which is yep, one of the yep. seven sisters. So, you know, um, yeah, so uh, George Plimpton, again, I literally only recognize him from that. I'm sure I've seen him in films, but I literally only recognize him from that Simpsons ad because he keeps he, he keeps trying to give Lisa Simpson a hot plate as well, which is a, a thing that kind of uh, sticks in my head. And he's one of those guys who's, I, I feel like he's less known as an actor. I mean, he certainly is an actor. You know, he's been in films. He often plays kind of this pompous sort of characters or like in goodwill hunting he was kind of a psychologist he always kind of has that air yeah. about him and i think that's largely what he's known for is kind of that voice and that air which tom hanks actually he has said you know he was really trying to uh, play that voice that he has uh, as george plimpton like that's who he was like constantly listening to on this and pulled a lot from so that he could sound as kind of with that kind of that you know, northeastern confidence that that Plimpton that that he has in his voice. Yeah, and the thing is as well. Obviously, uh, George Plimpton was also a friend of RFK, um, so you know yeah. he ran he ran in those circles. Uh, I think these days and 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 weirdly, he was an uncredited extra in Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> See, there you go, tying it all back, tying together. it all together. But uh, yeah, so he 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 is the father who basically. Uh, it's funny because he obviously he's refer like when when um when Tom Hanks comes in he he talks to his father and he he calls him Lawrence, and then he kind of breaks a little bit and calls him Dad, and I think that's obviously kind of you know meant to be this this kind of thing of like oh you know like you know pe these people are so rich obviously that they they kind of they don't they don't have any affection towards their children or uh you know with yeah. their parents so it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of like a, a very kind of a stereotypical kind of like wasp type thing going on and there's this funny thing the funny exchange there because plimpton clearly like there's there's this sense of like yeah, they're not so thrilled about all these choices that uh that uh the third has been making because he, when he talks about him being adopted and he's like, I'm really your son. He's like, Oh, please allow me that. fantasy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I did think that was, uh, I mean, that, that is one of the things that I thought was quite amusing was just like, I mean, he's not in the film after like the first couple of scenes, the bookies come call him for yeah. the, for the money and that's it. Um, you know, we do get a, we, we get in, in between, we get a, we get a kind of graduation scene. Um, there's a, a sex scene where, um, Kent is stuck outside his, uh, his shared accommodation, uh, with, ah, with yes. Lawrence where he's like literally like got his duvet and his pillow and he's like sleeping in the doorway, which is just, uh, I mean, I mean, come on America, you, you like you're the richest nation in the world. Surely you can't afford like separate rooms for college people. I mean, when I went to university, 
I had an ensuite and my own bedroom. And I think that's a, you know, that's interesting. I, I always assumed it was to kind of help build camaraderie and like help people get to know people because every time I lived in the dorms, it was always with another person. It was always with a roommate. There were very few that were singles and they were, um, you know, often for people who had lived there longer. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. It just struck me as a bit odd. Obviously it leads to this kind of situation with, uh, with Bootsy, um, one thing I will say is when we see Lawrence at the poker game at the beginning, um, his cigarette is lit, then it's not lit, then it's lit, then it's not lit, then it's in his mouth and it's not in his mouth and it drives me insane. And I don't I don't like I don't, I don't like it in films when smoking is a part of a person's personality, which is what it seems to kind of be in this film for for, you know, uh, Lawrence Bourne the um, third. And especially when the continuity is all over the place. It's like, oh, just, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's doubly <laughs> annoying me. Uh, and I'll say, of course, that they they put a they put up a sign, they put up like a a, a title card that says Yale, a college. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, right. I guess right. I guess that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, so the main plot is Kent, uh, played by Xander Berkeley, uh, is going to Thailand because he's joined the Peace Corps. Um, he's leaving from Idlewild the morning after graduation. Uh, the the people come calling for Lawrence the third, basically the. Uh, to kind of break his legs again there's one thing which i'm not fully comfortable with in this film which is the the kind of use of race as a punchline and the punchline you know of the gambler the, when we open on the gambling scene we don't see who he's gambling against but then the punchline is kind of that everybody else there is black and then you know the, yeah the kind yeah. of the, the the kind of the bookie is obviously is white but the person you know who's sent to kind of you know get the debt is black as well um and you know, I'm just like, there's even a kind of line, which I can't remember now, but it, it kind of basically m- kind of mentions this. And it's like, you know, I'm not, I, it, I don't know. It, uh, even in 1985, it feels it like it was a little bit out of place. I guess they're setting it in 1962. So, you know, the idea of kind of, um, you know, a bit more of a racial divide would have been evident. But at the same time, it feels like it's being used as a punchline in a way that I'm not 100% comfortable with. So, you know, I feel like I have to... Something obviously we'll talk oh, about yeah. later and on in the film as well. <laughs> the times well, oh yeah, absolutely, that, and that definitely is it. Definitely is a kind of a, a one of those notable issues that really feels very much of its time. Yeah. Is this type of, of filmmaking where? And uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk about this later because there's there's certainly a lot more of it here. But it certainly starts at this particular point. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, I laugh every time Cicero uh, is uh, you know he's got some some juicy lines uh, when he's chasing. Um, Hanks's character around, uh, not to mention the the loony uh, map. This is <laughs> well. That we this have. is the one thing that I really loved about this film. This was a really fun gag where um, he's he like when he hears that the, the you know the, the the guy's there to collect the debt, he immediately like exits out the back door, gets into his car, and just drives off. <laughs> And the way we know this is there's, there's there's like a map tracking his progress, but there's um you know oh oh under the map you've got like uh you know Tom Hanks driving and you've got the uh, the 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 guy kind of following him as well. Yeah, Cicero. So, chasing yeah. Him, right? So that and and I and then at the end as he reaches Idlewild and you see like a little red dot hit Idlewild on the map, which of course these days is known as JFK. Um, he just kind of busts through the map that we've been following. And I thought that was like a really, fun, I was like, that's a fun gag. Um, 
it's a pity yeah, there's not very more kind of breaking the fourth wall sort of moment. yeah and, and i think as well the kind of because obviously we as they fly over we also have like another kind of traveling on a map gag and you know uh, obviously indiana jones and i think one of its sequels had already come out before this so the idea of kind of like traveling on a map was already a trope that existed in film so it's fun that they kind of playing with that a little bit here where you know he literally arrives at Idlewild by busting through the map and these sorts of comedy moments I mean certainly with stuff like Airplane and kind of all the things that the uh, Zucker Abrams team had been doing with kind of that real spoofy comedy uh, this definitely feels like it's pulling from that you know like they're really kind of targeting that type of comedy in this in this film yeah uh, when you have moments like that yeah there's a there's a gag later on where he he learns to speak thai without any effort and that feels like a little over the top that like he picked up this entire language like just in a matter of, of kind of days um as a punchline to to beth saying you know everything comes easy for you and he literally has picked up the language without even trying um yeah so, right. so i feel like the film either needed to commit to more of those types of you know bursting through a map and him just kind of picking up thai like really commit to those jokes more or kind of play it a bit more straight and just have things be a bit more absurd. But it feels like it kind of seesaws between the two and it doesn't really kind of pick a tone um, for for some of it. It's a bit kind of flatter, um, you know, maybe that, you know, obviously this is the first time you've seen the film. So <laughs> that was just how it came after me, you know? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. When we talked to um, uh, Levine about this, he said that, um, the 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 stakes had largely been fairly realistic in the course of the film, but he was not very happy with a particular point that um, that Nicholas Meyer really wanted to keep, and that was when they read the subtitles when they're talking to uh, Lucille, and she has you know like a, a lisp or something, and is very hard to understand, and they actually um, you know both both Lawrence and at look down at the subtitles on the screen to read what she's saying. Yeah. Very much kind of a meta sort of joke, just like the map. Those are moments that he felt all of a sudden allowed the audience to say, you know what, this is, it's, it, we're, we're taking all of the, um, the sense of uh, real threat out of the story now, because now all of a sudden it's just kind of a joke. And, but that was something that Nicholas Meyer really fought to keep because he said, that's the biggest laugh of the movie when people do that. We're not going to cut it because it's, that's what people are really laughing at. And so I think there intrinsically be, becomes this, this struggle between kind of those two ways to tackle the story is like, are we going to go for the big laughs or are we going to try keeping it more grounded? And it, while it's funny, it still is holding a little bit more of a kind of a, a, a sense of real threat. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, obviously watching it for the first time, I, you know, I certainly felt that, um, and yeah. the kind of the, the mix of tones, um, uh, they fly out on Pan Am, which I think is a nice detail, but of course Pan Am was still around. So, <laughs> so, um, it's one of those weird things where today that seems like a, a particular kind of like a detail where it's like, oh yeah, they're making sure yeah, they right. got, but it was just Pan Am still existed until like 1990. It was, right. It really was Pan Am. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny because like from, a, from this perspective now, it's kind of weird, you know, with Pan Am being gone for 30 years, it's like, it, it looks like it's a, it's detail, but it's, it's not, it's just, it's just a plane that they had. Um, yeah. And on the plane, of course, this is where we meet uh, Tom Tuttle. Um, who apparently, you know, he, he kind of, I don't know, he, it's kind of a very kind of typical John, John Candy role. Like we said, it does feel a little bit kind of like what eventually evolved into the character in, um, Planes, Trains, where he's kind of talking to, yeah, yeah. 
uh, Lawrence, um, who is wearing the badge of Kent because obviously he, you know, he's he's swapped with Kent. He persuade, uh, and the, the right. funny thing is when when he, he says to Kent, "I need to get on the plane," the kind of the final persuader, which was always going to be obvious, was like his sports car. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I'll give up going to the Peace Corps if I can have your sports car. He's <laughs> like, okay, right. Um, and well, and, and I think it speaks to the character because, right? Because it's it's an easy trade to because first he asks for his his girlfriend Bootsy, mm. and he's like, fine, you can have her. Everyone else has. And then he says, and your car. And that's when Tom or Lawrence is upset at the trade, right? Yeah. He's like, oh, you dirty bastards. And then again, there is a kind of more of an airplane joke where we have Cicero hanging off the door. <laughs> yes. And then they kind of, they like jolt the airplane to a halt to get him to fall off. And then they go on their way. But falling falling from a plane is that's quite a distance. I don't know that if he survives that, uh, to be honest no, with you. No, especially since the plane keeps moving. I'm like, I hope they didn't run, drive right over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he manages to move seats and he uh, meets uh, Beth Wexler, uh, played by uh, Rita Wilson, future Yes. Future wife of Tom Hanks. Um, they had apparently yep. worked together on Buzz and Buddies. That's where he'd kind of known her from. And, and when they were casting this, apparently that, you know, he kind of put a word in and, um, you know, they got to kind of reunite here. And I think at the time Tom Hanks was still married to somebody else. So, <laughs> so um, I can't quite remember when exactly he divorced. Uh, yeah. Not until 87. Yeah. So a few years after this, yeah. he was still married to Samantha. Yeah. He, do, at this he point. divorced the, the mother of, um, Colin. Colin, yes, to, to marry the mother of Chet Hayes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, we meet her, and I will say this uh, out of everything in this film, obviously, Tom Hanks is trying. He's trying to do an, an accent, and I don't think it really works. It feels to me like he's a little bit mix, miscast in that role. Uh, John Candy, obviously, is just playing his John Candy role. Um, you know, he, he keeps saying Tom Tuttle, but I. He, it just feels like he's doing, you know, the kind of archetype that he'd been doing for a few films now. Um, but Rita Wilson, you know, she is, uh, I don't, don't think it's like she's enough in this film. I feel like they could have kind of cut back on some of the other kind of weird subplots. Um, I think as well in the kind of final third of the film, she's kind of misused a little bit. They kind of, you know, she becomes a damsel in distress and then they kind of don't do that much with her. Um, but she is so kind of like effortlessly charming. Um, and of course, the chemistry between yeah. her and Tom is kind of uh, you know kind of instant um you know it's yeah it's pretty obvious right <laughs> yes yeah if i yeah if i was his wife i you know uh, this it, it would be like a mr and mrs smith situation and i'm jennifer aniston i would be very concerned um because they just <laughs> they work i mean just to, as they they kind of have like a kind of meaning i've got to say as well it seems like we're taking a while to get to the premise of the film where they get to Thailand, but it takes this film a while to get to the premise when they're actually in Thailand. It takes them almost 30 minutes in a film that is like a minute 45 to actually get to Thailand. Um, but while they're on the plane, um, you know, they start talking. He pretends to be Kent because obviously that's what his name badge says, although he's dressed in a tux, which is well, he, he corrects her and says it's not a tux. It's a, a dinner suit. Um, showing right. obviously that he is old money. Um but yeah, so they kind of talk and they kind of get to know each other and they, you know, they kind of seem happy. And then he makes his move and she's, you know, she's not happy with him doing that. And, you know, uh, then he propositions the, uh, you know, the air hostess and, you know, she, she's kind of outraged and everyone starts calling him Lawrence. And he kind of just I, I, I would have been actually I think a funnier thing would have been for him to try and maintain the fact that he's Kent for the entire film. 
Um, but they drop it straight away and they just they just he just reveals it and now actually he's Lawrence he's super rich and he's not really part of the Peace Corps and he, and he doesn't really care if she comes out on the town in Bangkok or not you know because he's gonna he's just gonna go to the next girl um, so I you know again yeah. I think the problem with Tom Hanks is he's so likable it's hard for him to kind of be a heel like this it just doesn't feel like it works for me like I can't I can't hate him even when even when he's kind of it's, giving all these lines yeah. to you know to Beth I'm thinking well what just go out in town with him it's Tom Hanks he's, he's like he's really fun like you know it's it's hard for me to kind of get behind his character being uh being like the bad kind of like the bad guy and needing this kind of arc where he kind of uh, over the course of the film will kind of be, become less of the kind of spoiled rich kid. It's, it is a really tricky character. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he's okay with the accent, uh, but I do think that there are times where it slips. And I think that's the, the, the part that makes it not work as well, because it doesn't, he's not quite on it as much as he needs to be. But, um, but I think it's, I don't know. I, I guess it's, I have a hard time uh, separating myself because I have seen this so many times and I really just, I enjoy the silliness of him playing such a pompous character. I think it's really funny. Uh, But I I do think that it is uh, definitely something to Tom Hanks as kind of the aura of who Tom Hanks is and will become that this type of character, even at this point so early in his career, it didn't strike as like necessarily the right casting for the role, you know? And I think you'll certainly be talking about this when you talk about something like Bonfire of the Vanities later in his career. Yeah. That it's just, is it like, is he the guy who should have been in this particular role? Now, again, I love this film. I, I love him in, in, in this character, but I totally, I totally could still see that. Yeah. I think as well, uh, the, like the issue that I have, maybe it's because I've just recently seen Mazes of Monsters, which is a film I recommend nobody watches. Um, and in that, hey, hey, careful! I've got that on my DVD <laughs> shelf right behind me here. <laughs> and in that, he he also plays like the son of like a waspy family that are kind of arguing, and he he doesn't put an accent on in that film. He just kind of is himself. Uh, but it feels like we're kind of going over kind of similar ground. Um, you know, obviously when they arrive, he you know he he drop like I said, he drops the pretense. He tries to get the air hostess to go out, and she says, "But I'm engaged." And he's like, you know. <laughs> that doesn't matter to him yeah. um right. so, <laughs> you know they're in bangkok who cares um and they find out that they're gonna go to a small village and they're gonna build a bridge that's that's what the peace corps are gonna do they've got a two-year mission and they are gonna go they're gonna go to yeah. uh you know this very small village in thailand um just the three of them the three people we've met which is handy it's you know it's handy that we've met beth and <laughs> tom Tuttle and uh lawrence because the three of them are going to be and it's 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 funny as well because obviously you know to, to part of the whole peace corps thing is you couldn't just like join the peace corps like it wasn't like a you had to go through like a kind of a process where you got you know training or whatever it was a training yeah, yeah. Like, so, but yeah, because he, because he's so rich you know as he lands he gets a telegram and his dad's like that's it you're in thailand <laughs> like he kind of pulls some yep. strings and get him kind of gets him put into it Another thing that kind of annoys Beth as well. This is funny because, you know, over the next kind of over the kind of next, I don't know, third of the film, Beth gets gradually more and more annoyed by like everything that um, that Lawrence is doing. And, you know, in kind of true rom-com fashion, it leads to a point where they actually kind of, you know, he actually kind of starts doing stuff that impresses her and then she kind of starts to like him again. Um, yeah, but st- right, right, right. Straight away, we have like, you know, they, they're in these huts, we get rain, and then the, there is a kind of a, a pratfall where he comes out of the hut and just falls into, and he's like, <laughs> oh yes, Thailand. 
Um, ah, Thailand. Yeah, so yeah. I, which is, again, that was one of the kind of things that made me laugh a little bit. Um, but then we kind of, we get into the kind of the, the meat of the story, which is them building this bridge. Um, and, you know, at first... Well, and, and yes, I, I think let's, let's just take a, a, a quick step back and, and set up the Peace Corps, because you didn't talk about, uh, about John... Um, who we, oh, yes. we also meet as kind of he's kind of the leader of this particular I don't know group of of Peace Corps volunteers here in Thailand yeah and he's kind of their their point person who Beth totally clicks with and Lawrence of course uh, you know just wants to get him to help him get out of there um, and so he becomes a critical character because obviously he's he's the one who tells them you're going to be building this bridge for this community and everything and then of course we learn more about him as it goes but that's Tim Thomerson who yeah. He's another of those kind of faces from this period uh, that I, I feel like I've seen a number of times. Yeah, and and the the thing is as well, like he, the fact that his character is like named John and he's very kind of like rugged and has got like a, a chin that um, that Lawrence kind of talks about a couple of times when he meets him and kind of points <laughs> out. Like he he is kind of the archetypal kind of American, um, and yes, he's their point person. He he drops them off, uh, you know, in a, in the helicopter, and he's just like, "Here's the village," and then he just says, "I'll be back in a month," and then, <laughs> and then, he, then he just leaves, you know, uh, yeah, build a right. build a bridge for these people. And I don't know if this is how the Peace Corps actually operated, uh, just dumping like you know newly graduated teenagers in the middle of of jungles and saying to them, "Build a bridge." Um, well, you know, I I actually did um, some volunteer work actually in South America with a program called Amigos de las Americas, which was more of a kind of a high school slash college version of the Peace Corps, specifically for Spanish speaking people in South America. Okay, and and the way that that the way that that one worked, and I'm assuming the Peace Corps is kind of similar, is you know you pretty much do get dumped into a village, but the the people that were there ahead of time, like John, would have already kind of kind of scoped out all the areas, let everybody know what's happening, kind of laid the groundwork so that when you arrive, they introduce you around and then they take off. They know that the groundwork has already been set for everything you need to be doing. So I'm, I'm just kind of assuming that it was kind of something similar. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we kind of get, uh, you know, uh, the kind of the ins and outs of how they're going to start building this bridge. Um, Tom Tuttle has, has kind of you know, told uh, Lawrence that he took this kind of course in manipulating people, which, you know, is a, basically a setup for a gag later on in the film. Um, and, <laughs> you know, he, he says, let's let's get that wood because it's, um, you know, it's good wood. We can, you know, we can build, yeah. we can build. It's teak wood. Yeah, it's teak. Right. And, uh, you know, the village is up in arms because they're like, no, don't take down that that, that wood. And this introduces us to uh, Gede Wanatabe playing uh, at Toon. Um Right. Which I don't know if that is a proper Thai name. Uh, it doesn't feel like it is. Well, and 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 Getty himself is totally the wrong. I mean, he's of of Japanese lineage. I mean, he's he's actually you know full blooded American, born in I think Utah. Yeah. But um, totally like not even from this part of of Asia, which is you know uh, yeah. I, I think that speaks to largely if we go through this cast, other than like all the extras and people that they brought in, um, you know, a lot of them are. Uh, I think uh, Ernest Harada, who plays Chung Mi, is of, of Hawaiian descent. Yes. And yeah. uh, Sh- Shakti uh, Chen, who plays Lucille, is of uh, Chinese descent. So, uh, yes. Yeah. This is this is this is this kind of Asian kind of lumping everyone together that was so prevalent, and uh, I, I I think is is a problematic element of older 
type of uh, film uh, cinematic storytelling that you certainly see on display here. Yeah. Now, I mean, I first saw uh, Getty in UHF. Uh, where he had oh wow, where he had Wheel of Fish, which is uh, probably one of my favorite <laughs> gags in that entire film, which is just a film full of uh, favorite gags. Again, another eighties film, you know, obviously that we rented quite a bit because it was like this is an insane film. We're just going to see it more and more. Um, and I also remember seeing him in, in Vamp as well, which is uh, one of my. I, I'm not a huge horror fan, but uh, it's kind of like a comedy horror type thing. It's got um, Michelle Pfeiffer's sister in it um and grace jones as well and that's is that is that the oh no no i'm thinking of a different one never mind i was thinking um what is the one that um jim carrey was in the vampire i don't uh, know vampire, jim carrey was in a vampire uh, i, I can't remember i don't remember that it was it was some early uh vampire comedy okay um, well it wasn't vamp i'll put it like that um <laughs> it wasn't vamp no, <laughs> no it wasn't vamp uh, no. which is a film that i i once once bitten once bitten yes. as well ah as. there we go yeah and also uh, playing yeah. an actual uh japanese person in gung-ho um you know he that's right you know, that's right and obviously i think less said about 16 candles and the role he played in that the better but that sadly is probably where most people remember him from because i think that very much was such a big film yeah in the 80s that that's i think um, where really, I mean, I think that's probably why he ended up getting cast in things like this and Gung Ho. I mean, it was, yes, they, they were like literally within a few years and then it's a big gap of a few, you know, like three years before he did like UHF and then uh, Gremlins 2. Um, the yeah. new batch. And then Tom Hanks would bring him back for uh, for that thing you do. Yes. In a, in a kind of a bit part. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we meet him. Uh, I've all, I, I will say this, I've always enjoyed him. Well, I mean, even though some of the roles they put him in and I would say this one is one of them, are not particularly... Like, the fact that he has to kind of do the kind of broken English thing is just... It's, you know, it just doesn't use his talents. Um, you know, he's, he's, he seems like such a such a kind of, like, nice guy and such a... You know, every every role I see him in... I mean, in particular UHF, when he's just screaming the words Wheel of Fish, you know, that's... I mean, it's it's comedy gold. You know, he has, he has great time in. And in this film as well, he does get a chance to do some kind of, like, comedic bits that kind of... Um, you know, uses his kind of timing really well, particularly when we've got some heads on pikes. Um, and you know, yeah, they just yeah. kinda, <laughs> the camera just scrolls past and he's just like looking, at, like pretending to be a head on a pike, which is a funny little kind of uh, visual gag. Um, but yeah, he... Exactly. He, he's, he's also, just going to more stereotypes, he's also unfortunately used as kind of the butt of uh, jokes about like kind of this weird kind of gay homosexual thing going on with between like the sumo guards and him like they yeah they are totally infatuated with him which is another certainly an element of the 80s that comes through yeah uh, not so well these days yeah i would say uh, uh, you know kind of there's 45 minutes of this film where it, you, there's a lot of that and uh you know i don't want to kind of bore everybody by going over it but yeah there's just uh, like just the kind of miscasting of asian actors in the 80s is just it's just an ongoing kind of issue it's a thing um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he explains that the forest is you know that's that's you know um sacred they can't chop it down and then Tuttle's just like well let's use those those trees over there then <laughs> like he just kind of he kind of doesn't even really put much effort into it which i thought was quite funny um and then he get well he well this is because he's like i'm gonna go find some other stuff and this yes. is uh, you know to this day one of the things i've laughed out more like every time i watch this i am in stitches and it's when he goes into the jungle by himself to find good trees and he stumbles a upon a tiger yeah. he has this exchange with the tiger where he's like you're a big kitty cat <laughs> yes you are 
oh, what a big cat. And I can't tell you how many times I've said that, how many times I've rewatched that scene. Uh, just John Candy doing that. I mean, it just endlessly entertaining for me. It's uh, I think that's one of those moments of this movie that just works really well. Yeah. He gets. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Too. No, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, it's uh, like it's John Candy, isn't it? So it's 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 funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he gets stuck in a tiger trap and captured by um, the communists, which we were warned about earlier. A nice little setup. The People's Army uh, take Tom, uh, and I'll say, you know, uh, the funniest thing that happens with Tom is he's he's strapped to a post and he's singing his uh, his school's kind of like fight song, and he's not going to give in. And then literally 30 seconds later, he is br- completely brainwashed. And he's now, uh, um, you know, he's now a comrade in the People's Army and he's willing to kind of bring down capitalism. And then he does something which is, again, is, it feels like it's kind of more, um, you know, Zucker Abrams, where he just does this kind of maniacal laugh. And he keeps laughing oh, yeah. long after it was appropriate. And the guy who's with him is like, stop now, stop laughing. <laughs> like, yeah, stop, uh, right, right. And that is something that comes back as he, as he goes through the rest of the film. He keeps kind of maniacally laughing while trying to cover up the fact that he's actually now working for the communists. Um, and I was going to say that. All, uh, yeah. And, and now all I can think of is Chris Cooper when anytime I see <laughs> yes, a maniacal laugh. Yeah, doing his maniacal laugh. <laughs> Um, exactly. But yeah, yeah. Well, what I love about that as well is just the fact that he can't laugh, so he just says maniacal laugh. That's that's literally the funniest. Yeah, right. Such a clever kind of deconstruction <laughs> of that gag. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of most of Tom's story is just he gets brainwashed. There's a whole thing where he's he's walking with his, um, you know, the, the the guy who's brainwashed him, and he keeps kind of, um, you know, trying to say what they're going to do, and the guy's like, "That's enough now, comrade," <laughs> and he keeps trying to stop him. Yeah. Um, and that's that's uh, that's that's kind of a funny thing. Uh, there's not really much of John Candy after that until he kind of returns and he's part of building the bridge but his character doesn't yeah. really do much until we get to the kind of final act um, yeah. but what I do like and that, and, is they actually build oh, a bridge that's like they, they do build a bridge this is it yeah. this is like there's, a, there's some comedies where the building of the bridge would just be the gag and they would never build the bridge but then they have this montage with elephants pushing over trees and they build a bridge and I was like, you know, they they held up like a blueprints over where the bridge is meant to be, and then they bring them down. And in some films, there wouldn't be a bridge there, and that would be the gag. But they've built a bridge, and uh, you know, I was like, well, that's good. Um, you know, that's kind of impressive. Um, you know, that they actually managed to do that. But they managed to do it because um, <laughs> the local the local gangster Chung Mi uh, kidnaps Atune and um, and Lawrence, and he threatens them. And I've got to say, this is the this is one part of the plot which I I, I had problems with, um, not least because Chung Mi doesn't feel like that's a Thai name again. So you know, there's that. Yeah, I don't I don't think they had a sense of that. Yeah, right. um, but also the fact that why I don't understand for a start why he's threatening them. Like he he says, you know, if the if the bridge isn't built in six weeks, he is gonna um, kill Lawrence in seven weeks. But I don't know why he's bothering to threaten them because they're there to build a bridge anyway. If he threatens them or if he doesn't <laughs> threaten them, they're still going to build a bridge. Like, if if what you want is a bridge to be built, then that's what they were coming there to do. They've they've flown like thousands of miles <laughs> to build a bridge. So it I it's yeah, just one right, of the right. parts of the plot where I'm like, it's completely unnecessary. Like, you don't need to threaten them to build a bridge because that was their entire goal as members of the Peace Corps was to build a bridge. Tom Tuttle from Tacoma was extremely enthusiastic about building a bridge. You know, like, he before they before Chung Mi threatens them, they were going to build a bridge anyway. So the fact that he's like, build it quickly, it's... 
it's puzzling. I, I think that, and, and and I don't think it's it's that clear. But and I, I again, I part of me is just kind of speculating at this point, even after having seen this so many times. I can't help but feel that it's just a timing thing. Like he wants it done faster than they had been anticipating doing it. Maybe yeah. I mean, that's that's really my best guess for it. It's it's one of those story points that I guess I kind of always gloss over because. When it comes to Chung Mi and his conversation with Lawrence, uh, I, I again, it's just one of those conversations that I think is really funny because he's just like, you know, uh, you know, more opium means more money, more money means more power, <laughs> and time is money. He's like, well, what was money again? <laughs> well, you know, like that. Yeah, that whole exchange I, I think is just hilarious. And so, um, but yeah, it is one of those points that it's like, yeah, couldn't he have just waited? And and so I guess there it's like, is it because like we have this confluence of all these different people who want the bridge for different reasons as we come to find out including the cia yeah we'll learn soon enough and so that uh that makes me wonder if there was something in there that i don't know if it was in the script or not but may have just been missed you know yeah uh, but it was just one of those things that really stood out to me and then we get probably possibly yeah. the worst scene in the film which is all the stuff with lucille but because because of where they are they can't pronounce the l and there's certain words that she can't pronounce the l and the r in and we get like a whole lot of of that and uh like you say they resort to subtitles and they just read the subtitles and break the fourth wall yeah but i well and it's like she and 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 i I couldn't figure out because i think it's more than just that i also am like did are they making us think that like she had had her tongue cut out or something because it's even like beyond just not being able to say the l's or that kind of l r uh, thing, but it's it, it, sometimes it seems like they're they're pushing it into another element that I just I don't even understand. Sometimes I'm just like I'm not sure where you're going with this whole thing with her. Yeah, I mean I would have been more comfortable if instead of the broken English she had just spoken Thai and then they'd have read the subtitles and that would have been the joke and that yeah. that would have just been funnier and also it wouldn't have been just like weirdly racist <laughs> for like five minutes yeah, yeah. um and there is right, there right. is a little bit of that with chung me as well where he has some difficulty pronouncing the odd word and they kind of they kind of play on that as well and you know i mean it's yeah. the 80s so you can only expect so much well um and and i think i think that's also just it's the 80s and it's making fun of the the 60s idealism about the peace corps and these people who i i think there is some something intrinsically uh, kind of pompous anyway when when you look at I mean I'm all for voluntary obviously I've done it as I said but the idea of the Peace Corps you can see it almost as this pompous like well we're America we're a, you know not the third world so we're going to come to your poor little country and we're going to help you and so I think there almost is this like intrinsic joke of the just the nature of it as well yeah I mean, I feel there's a, I mean, straight away, I feel there is a little bit of that white savior stuff as well, where it's just like, yeah. why do you need, why do you need uh, the, like America to go to Thailand to build a bridge in this kind of village that's in the middle of nowhere? Like, you know, I, I think obviously the motivations of John kind of uh, maybe kind of were influencing that a little bit. Maybe, maybe we're meant to kind of read into that a little bit, you know, but again it's it's not it's not 100 percent clear like it's it and and like you say it does it does kind of feel a bit weird that especially the fact that like like lawrence is like extremely rich and constantly tells everyone he's extremely rich and it's like that makes it even worse like <laughs> i think if kent was there at least he was doing it for the right reasons but you know yeah, the, right, the right. fact that, that that you've got this kind of you know pampered rich kid is is the, who's kind of saving everyone 
Um, and I do kind of like that they, they do the gag, like I said, where he suddenly knows how to speak Thai after a couple of weeks, um, you know, after Beth says everything yeah, comes yeah. so easy to you and he just starts speaking Thai fluently. Um, and, and you know, we kind of get through the whole kind of building of the bridge and everything and we arrive at the point where, you know, the, the bridge is complete and they're ready to kind of do a ceremony like opening it. Uh, but before they do, they have like a, a bit of a celebration because Lawrence has built himself a bar hut. He's taken he's taken a hut and and he takes Beth to it, um, you know, dressed in his uh, tuxedo. Don't, oh, no, sorry, um, his uh, dinner, dinner jacket. jacket. But I don't know how he got it so clean. Like in the middle of the jungle, I don't know how he managed to. I, I mean, obviously, there's ways to clean clothes, but this is a, this is a white suit. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pristine. yeah, it's it's kind of it looks like it did at the beginning <laughs> of the film, but um, yeah. Um, so they go into the bar, and of course, because they're in a bar and they're kind of two people. Uh, there has to be a reference to uh, to Casablanca, and uh, they play as time goes by. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, a kind of cover on what sounds to me like a gamelan, but I might be mishearing it. Um, and then they kind of segue into the proper song. Uh, but during this, uh, they take a brief time out to have a ninety second commercial for Coca Cola, as Rita Wilson, <laughs> as you know, um, Tom Hanks. He's got the bar, and he's 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 saying, you know, to her, he's like, you know, you've got they've got Jack Daniels and Jim Beam, and like all these various kind of like alcohols. Um, and she's like, you know, I haven't got any toothpaste, and you've got like a fully stocked bar. And then he kind right, of tries to upset, he tries yeah. to tempt her with an offer of of booze, but obviously she's not having it. And so he says, "Well, how about a a coke?" And then he goes through the different flavors, and then she's like, "No, just like a you know, just an original, like a normal coke." And so he gets a, a coke and kind of you know opens it up and then gives it to her, and she spends forty five seconds just drinking a coke with with the fully relishing with it, the yeah. label pointed outwards um, towards the camera because um, she's a true pro. Um, and yeah, so people <laughs> felt that this was product placement, especially given that TriStar Pictures was owned by Coca-Cola at this particular time. Right. Um, but I think there's been some insistence from the, you know, the, the kind of director and writers that it wasn't product placement. It's just, no. you know. Yeah. I mean, this, this script had been around. I mean, they started shopping this script around six years before the movie got made. And it was, I mean, when they actually sold it to the company, it wasn't, it, it was not owned by Coca-Cola at the time. And but it was always Coca Cola in the script, and I mean, I, I I don't know. I guess I think that holds true for anyone who goes overseas. You start craving those sorts of things, and just I think Coca Cola just has kind of that like down home American sort of feel that I think that it, it it does feel like a comfort thing, and so I I can totally see it being just that, but I can also see how it becomes this problematic product placement in the middle of a film when coca-cola you know just bought the company and now here they are with this movie with this like <laughs> coca-cola commercial pretty much built into the middle of it yeah i mean i think there was a thing so. uh, there was a thing many years ago about like kind of uh, easily identifiable logos and how the coca-cola logo was like you know identifiable in like 99 percent of the world because it's that prevalent and you know and even when it's translated yeah. into other languages the stylization of the logo, you know, in kind of like Arabic or in in kanji or whatever, like any other any other format, even I mean, eventually, obviously, uh, in the in the Cyrillic alphabet, you know, like that that kind of iconic red and you know the the way that the logo's done with the white, you know, it's it's kind of so recognizable that it is it is kind of seen as something that's just kind of a universal thing. So it does kind of make sense that you know even in Thailand you would be able to get yourself a Coca Cola, you know, like that just that kind of makes sense um in, t yeah. in terms of how it works um but yeah so i kind of i kind of like this 
this kind of you know the what I what I feel you know was very much kind of like the end of the second act where we've got this kind of you know the bar hut has been built the bridge has been built you know there's kind of a celebration you know about to happen and there's a connection between our characters yeah and and it it feels like we've kind of reached a point where you know as a viewer I'm like what on earth is going to happen now because we've still got 40 minutes to go with this film <laughs> and uh, also uh, you know what's happened with you know the brainwashing of John Candy and when is that going to come up and and then there was also an awkward scene when uh, John uh, gave a, a statue to Beth that had a gigantic penis and obviously that is the entire <laughs> that's the entire joke in that scene like it goes on for a little bit but you're like you know so John well reappears it, it, yeah, looking it, for this statue yes. with the penis and he's kind of angry that Beth um you know didn't well it's because he's a, he also has totally fallen for Beth right yeah. i mean that's oh, the yeah. whole joke is that he's infatuated with her and he introduces her to Mike which is a very important introduction <laughs> yeah. which happens to be the name of his knife yeah. and i think that it it sets us on the sense that John is crazy and it turns out working for the CIA and has this whole covert plan to kind of work with uh, Chun-Mi and everything. And just like the way all of that um, plays out, I, I don't know. I, it's it's a little goofy, I think, is probably a, a, a light way of describing all of the stuff with John at this point. Yeah, because we kind of we meet John and he's kind of like the rival for Lawrence, you know, for Beth's affection. Then he turns up with this statue with a giant dong. And then he turns up and says he's working for the CIA. Like I don't know. It's it's just it's just one of those it's just one of those things where his character seems to have just become crazy so quickly. Um, I guess as a counterpoint to the fact that Lawrence has become you know so good, you know, like he's built this bridge and yeah. he's learnt Thai, and you know, like he's basically kind of uh, become a proper um, you know Peace Corps you know member. Uh, whereas sure. in the opposite direction, John has gone insane. Um, and so they open up the bridge. They set up some fireworks. Uh, Atun does some um, some kickboxing. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> people just kind of have fun. And it's at this point that we find out that Beth has been kidnapped by John and taken to Chen, Cheng Mi, who is working with John. And, you know, uh, at this particular point, um, you know, they, they, they kind of... Um, well, no, actually, there's a little bit after that where... Um, where Lucille comes, um, you know, and gives the money to Lawrence because he, you know, obviously he he's he'd asked for Chung Mi to to pay him to get the bridge built quicker so that he could pay off his gambling debts, and so she comes to deliver it. But then we find out that she has blades at the end of her extremely long fingernails, and she keeps <laughs> trying to she keeps trying to kill Lawrence, but he keeps getting interrupted by Atun. Um, and then you know he he fight he finds out that she's trying to kill him and they do the thing where he goes to break a bottle but it doesn't break and so he kind of just looks at the bottle which I thought was a nice bit of business um, and from this they then decide to go and you know they find out that John is in cahoots with Chung Mi and they go to save Beth from Chung Mi's uh, base um, you know and I, I I don't know if there's really much to say about the rescue uh, because at this point they've well, kind of like drugged Beth I, I, and. You know, she's yeah, it's a little there's some goofy stuff. And this is this is kind of a continuation of the goofiness at this point, because, I mean, they're really amping up the comedy, at, you know, when they get to Chung Mi's place, because they've got kind of they're doing all the gags with the sliding doors. And it feels very Scooby Doo, where one person goes through one door and closes it. And then another person immediately comes out of a different door and closes it <laughs> and goes through another door. And it's like this this, you know, weird 
kind of goofy um, in and out through the doors uh, gag that we have for a little bit. Yeah. And then the weird thing where they all hide in, in the giant vase, which rolls down the stairs and, and crashes. And, uh, you know, eventually they make their mis- their escape and everything. But it just it is very goofy. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the, the best that can be said about uh, everything at the palace is it's it's a it's a very heightened silliness going on. there. Yeah. Um, and you know, again, like they they go and find, you know, they, they don't have any much, they don't have much trouble getting into like the, you know, uh, Chung Mi's headquarters and then go in, they find Beth almost straight away. And then they rescue her, and then they get out of there. Like it, it, it's such a weird. I mean, I feel like the film could do without all of that. <laughs> Basically, like the mo, like finding out that John is in cahoots with Chung Mi could have easily been done a different way. Um, and I don't know why Beth had to be kidnapped and then rescued like within the space of fifteen minutes of the film. It doesn't really feel like it adds much, and all it does is sideline Beth for you know a little bit of the film. You know, Beth could have figured it out. She could have said. You know, John's in cahoots with the Chung Mi. He's working for the CIA. Like that could have been the thing that she did, but instead she just gets kidnapped and drugged. And uh, it, you know, it probably was something to just again further the the uh, growth of Lawrence's character, where he's now this. Not yeah. only is he kind of doing this whole thing with Bridge, but now he's also a person who's willing to risk his life to go into the the palace of the enemy and rescue uh, the woman. And I think. You know that fits of the time of the the writing style, you know, and so I can I can totally see that being kind of his motivations there. Yeah, at the same time, I feel like he'd already kind of reached the the kind of I mean, he 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 does something after that anyway, where it feels like he's he's shown that he's changed. Um, and I feel like when with with the whole kind of as time goes by thing, I feel like we kind of reached a point where you know we'd seen that Beth and Lawrence had gl- grown close to each other. Um, him rescuing her just feels like a weird. Kind of like Indiana Jones, Romance in the Stone type thing, like just kind of thrown in there. Yeah, um, all the stuff with Chung Mi feels kind of knock off Indiana Jones a little bit. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, they get they get back to the village and they decide that they are going to blow up the well. The bridge. And, and and I think we also need to mention that Tom has come back at this point and he's guarding the yes, bridge and he's yeah. brainwashed and he's completely nuts. And there are some really great references uh, throughout everything that from this point with him. And uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, because he's whistling the Colonel Bogey March when he, at one point when he's watching the bridge before Lawrence, this is when it, Lawrence comes and says, hey, we're going to go rescue Beth. Do you want to come? He's like, I can't leave my bridge. Yeah. You know, he's so paranoid and brainwashed. And um, yeah. And so so he is there guarding this bridge and he's so brainwashed by by the uh, the the Chinese army that's coming that he he's in this place where, you know, he he can't leave this bridge. This whole thing is you know, this thing that he has to save. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just jumped over that because I didn't think, you know, <laughs> he's just been brainwashed and he's on the bridge. I there's not much really. Uh, I, it's, when they, I just think, yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just because of those moments that it ties into Bridge on the River Kwai, which I just think are another set of funny nods because yeah. it's all about this bridge. And here we have this spoof that's all about this bridge. And then when he blows it up, he's got his Bridge on the River Kwai line that he says and everything. I just, I think it's pretty, pretty funny. I mean, at this point, this is when Lawrence and Beth are like, we're going to have to blow up the bridge uh, so it doesn't fall into the hands of the CIA. <laughs> um, who yeah. I think John says that they're going to march like an army over it. But when I look at that bridge, it looks just about enough to hold like, you know, four or five people walking over at a time. It doesn't look substantial enough to, to run your military <laughs> over it. But, you know, uh, you know, 
that's just me. Um, so yeah, they you know, and then this is where they find out that Tom is trying to protect the bridge because he's been brainwashed by the People's Army, um, and they 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 kind of manage to kind of break it because uh, they've got like a sticks of dynamite. Um, I'm not quite, uh, yeah. and and so they they kind of they they say that if you know like they. They they unbrainwash Tom, and he says that if they put sticks of dynamite in the middle of the bridge, and then you know press a plunger down, it will blow up. It blow up the bridge, um, and so of course they go to do that, and the plunger doesn't work. <laughs> so uh, this is the point which Lawrence he has to go and basically light the fuse himself, and then jump off the bridge, um, which is I think after battling Tom on it or John on yes, it. Yes, is... yeah. Well, this yeah, but this is where we get John again. But I think I think what's funny is. Earlier, when he was talking about building the bridge to the villagers, he says, you know, they use it to get, you know, people use the bridges to go from one place to another. And also some people throw themselves off it. Um, so I don't know if they put that line in just because that's literally what he does later on as the bridge explodes. Um, you know, so he jumps, he, he they explode the bridge. Uh, I think John is, is John killed or am I misremembering? Uh, it We don't find no. out, but he's, he is knocked off the, the bridge and he's like that golden as he kind of yeah. flips off the bridge and into the water. We don't ever find out if he was killed or not. All we know is that Lawrence's body washes up and he's okay. Yeah. And Beth kind of, um, you know, goes to the water and kind of, you know, rescues him from the water. Um, and then we get the, the extremely quick wrap up ending where they, <laughs> they decide they get married uh, because they've fallen in love. Uh, they're going to stay in Thailand and he's going to open a casino uh, and he sends a telegram to his father. And obviously that's, you know, read out in voiceover to kind of finish the film, um, yeah. which what, what's funny is it's he kind of says, you know, I'm opening up this casino. It's going to be called Lawrence's after me uh, as almost like that. This is kind of like a, you know, a dig at his father or something. But I'm sure his father is fine with him not coming back home. <laughs> like It seemed like his father didn't really <laughs> right. care for him. So this kind of exactly. like, you know, look at me now, dad, of like I'm staying in Thailand. There's nothing you can do to change my mind. It's like, I, I don't want you to come back. Just stay in Thailand forever for all I get. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it, feel, it feels like it's meant to be like a, an attack, but it doesn't really land. Uh, but yeah, so although although interestingly, it was like he's now probably the better person of his family. Like, I, I don't know if his dad was a good person or not. He certainly seems as pompous as Lawrence, you know, and uh, that might just be George Plimpton's heir uh, that he presents. But, uh, you know, he was seemed disappointed in his son. But at the same time, like, would he be proud that now his son is like helping the little people or would he you know, would he kind of look down on that, too? So that's kind of a. I, I wonder one of those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say I don't, I don't like I don't know that his father's the kind of person that would really care about the Peace Corps. Uh, like, I mean, I yeah, know, yeah. I know that obviously oh, sure, George yeah. Clinton, I guess, would probably run in those circles, and you know, the Kennedys and all the rest of it. Um, but it, it feels, it feels to me a little bit like, well, you know, like uh, I don't know. It just feels like he, like the fact that he's like, I'm working for the Peace Corps and, you know, I'm helping these people. I think the George Plimpton character would be like, I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm not that bothered. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, help whoever right. you want. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of really weird um, that, that, that that's kind of like the final out in the film is, is like, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be helping these people <laughs> um, because I don't think that uh i don't think that you know that he would particularly care um yeah probably not but yeah so that so that you know that that's kind of how the film finishes um you know with obviously tom tuttle um no longer brainwashed um 
I don't know. Team, I, I don't think we ever really get much of a resolution of him, do we? Is he just he's just in the village, isn't he? Just in the Peace Corps, and yeah, yeah. and I don't know if he sticks around. I, you know, at the end of the film, it's it's really by then, other than other than him blowing up the bridge and having his like, what have I done? Line that he has there, um, I, I feel like he his character kind of falls off the map a little bit by the time we get to the end. I mean, yeah. and it's you know it's largely focusing on Lawrence and Beth at that point. I mean, that's really who. Um, we're looking at because this is it's the love story and they're the ones that you know connect at the end and now they're happy yeah so and and you know that's it the end of the film uh up go the credits i just have to say i have to say that the music in this james horner does the music yes. and um I, I you know he's just such an incredible composer he it's a sad loss what happened to him but i love just like the themes that he has and like when the building of the bridge theme is going on and, and like the end credits themes and all that stuff it's just it's really strong horner work that i don't know if a, a, a release of the music ever came out other than a few odd tracks here and there but it's it's really good stuff yeah really i was gonna say it. like the montages are really well scored and it kind of works um in in that sense so uh, something i should have mentioned earlier which is you know a question that i'm going to be asking which is is tom hanks getting top billing um and the answer is yes he gets top billing over john candy (laughs) Um, because of course at this particular point in time uh tom hanks is a star john candy is as well but you know tom hanks is generally the bigger star um, and I think all the pictures that I've yeah, seen for yeah. this, for the poster for this, are basically all about Tom Hanks. <laughs> They're all focusing on Tom Hanks. And well, I mean, and the main poster was that is the trio of them, right? Like that yeah. kind of. I, I love the the painting of that that poster art of the three of them kind of walking up a slope with the bridge behind them, and it just feels very kind of. It has that Peace Corps optimism about it, and everything. It feels very hopeful, and so. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think that he always had had top billing with it. There are, I mean, there are some like kind of alternate uh, covers. Uh, I think for like home releases and stuff that kind of cut out Rita Wilson, which <laughs> just Tom Hanks and John Candy. Um, oh, but yes, yeah, so, but mostly it is the it is the three of them um, on most of the posters. But yeah, some of them it's just literally uh, Tom Hanks uh, and John Candy, and others it's just literally Tom Hanks. Um, but again, I think that's yeah. because, you know, when things get re-released, as was the case with Mazes and Monsters, all of a sudden Tom Hanks is the, st- <laughs> is the only face on the poster, um, even if he's not, you know, yeah. 100% in all of the film. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I would say uh, in terms of rating this, uh, maybe this is going to be controversial in terms of the ratings, which is <laughs> either it's either T. Hanks or no T. Hanks. Um, and I'm gonna. I mean, I'm gonna guess that you're definitely T. Hanks on this one. Oh, I definitely am. I, I'm. I'm capital T all the way. Yeah. Whereas I think I would say simply because of some of the racist aspects that you. I don't think you can kind of gloss over. I would say no T. Hanks, but I. I mean, I think if this film was about 15 minutes shorter and they kind of trimmed some of the the, the stuff from kind of the Chung Mi stuff and kind of just made made it more about building the bridge. And less about people putting on accents and doing broken English, um, and then maybe it might be a T. Hanks. But I think there's just a little bit too much of the. I mean, even in the opening scene, there's you know there's the implication of of the fact that just because these people are black, they're going to be dangerous and vicious, and you know that kind of undertone. You know, it doesn't. It yeah, certainly yeah. doesn't. I mean, I don't think it would have even sit right for me if, if I'd have seen this in 1985. Um, I think as well in uh, because there's there's almost kind of like a parody of that in Weird Science where they're at the 
they're kind of like at the jazz bar and all the they're kind of acting black the two kind of kids um and kind of there is the kind of the play on the fact that they're in they're they're kind of acting black in front of all these black people and that is obviously you know uh, gonna get them kind of harmed in some way but in the end everybody kind of likes them and they turn out to be you know kind of goofy and friendly and so you know like it kind of it, it doesn't go down that road but obviously in this we literally have the only real prominent black person is chasing after Tom Hanks to get it, to kind of beat him up for money. And, you know, yeah. it's just one of those things that I think, you know, even, even given that it was the eighties, I, you know, it just doesn't sit right with me um, in terms of that. Uh, yeah. It definitely does feel of its time with, with some of those elements here. And I, I think that, it, that if you look through the decades, I think that it, it probably lasted a while after this too, you know, and uh, yeah. it, it unfortunately um it's just it's one of those uh, i don't know i think it ends up being an easy filmmaking way out to just kind of use uh stereotypes like that um especially in comedies when it's easy to bring up a a a stereotype to make a a laugh out of it and uh, those are more difficult elements in this film and i think especially for people like you who had never seen this before who are going to jump into it for the first time and watch it um it's it's one of those things where you almost need to be able to before you watch it just say okay i'm going to be looking at some of this stuff it's like those warnings that you know uh warner brothers puts before like you know some of those looney tunes now where there's smoking or or something else that's happening or stereotypes and they say you know there is some stuff in here that you may not like yeah Yeah, you know it's just you know of its time is if you're if you're going into it and you're kind of okay i'm gonna have to just roll with the punches on those things just so i can see what this was then yeah i think that um, you you may be able to kind of um, you know find some enjoyment in it still, but um, it I don't know I I watched it at the right time. It certainly is a film that has stuck with me, and I think there are a lot of funny beats in it. Even when when sometimes Tom Hanks's accent slips a little bit or whatever, yeah. I I, I think that there's enough funny in here for me. I, I'll keep returning to this over and over again. I know I will probably never watch it ever again. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, it was well, it was enjoyable enough watching it w- one time, but I think, like I said, there's too many things in it where you kind of have to, particularly the stuff with like the L's and the R's, like that kind of humor. It's just like it's just painful to kind of uh, to to watch. Um, and, yeah, you know, yeah. but th- like I said, there were a few gags in there that I loved. I loved that kind of bursting through the map thing. That kind of caught me off guard, and I thought that that's like that's really funny. And you know, the kind of stuff from John Candy where he got brainwashed. There's stuff in there that's funny, but I I just don't think there's enough to kind of carry the rest of the film. Like I said, if they'd have gone all out wacky and just been like kind of with the tone of like Airplane or something, uh, then maybe I could have overlooked some of the other stuff. Because even in Airplane, there were jokes that you know. But th- but. <laughs> Yeah. But it's but it, but you know it's it's played it's played more kind of wacky and so it's not it's not you know it's not as kind of damaging. Um, sure. Know, so. Sure. But uh, with that being said, let's go to plugs. If there's anything that you wish to plug, obviously I think you kind of plugged it a little bit at the start, Andy. But if you want to kind of get into details, yeah, I, I mean the podcast that I've uh, been doing, we've been uh, you know this year's our ten year anniversary. Uh, the next real film podcast, we've got a, under under that umbrella, we have a number of other different shows that that uh, we run as well. And then kind of as a side show, we also have the Marvel Movie Minute. So any, for anyone who's fans of movies by minutes. Um, you can go to uh, thenextreel.com or marvelmovieminute.com and and uh, hear us talking about all sorts of movies. Uh, we've done quite a few, so uh, so check them out. And you can find us at the Extremely Awkward Twitter, uh, uh, 
F it's T underscore F T memory uh, because there's just too many letters in T Hanks for the memories. Um, so you can find us there at Twitter and I think on Facebook as well. You can find us at uh, T Hanks for the memories. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you wish to communicate how correct or wrong uh, our opinions on things are, then that's the place to do it. Uh, I'm not saying that I'll pay any attention to it, but, uh, you know, you can always feel free to express yourself there. Uh, so thanks for joining me to talk about volunteers, Andy. Thank you. I had a great time. And, uh, next time, unfortunately, I'm going to be falling into the money pit. Dang, 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 dang,